Good morning again. We're back in our series in 1 Thessalonians that we've been going through as we've been thinking about this church that Paul founded, we read about in Acts 17, that's been that's going through a rapid change. Their lives have been fundamentally uh, reorganized, and he is writing back to them, uh, encouraged by what's going on, and we're going to hear a lot about that in this passage This is probably the longest, uh, well, it is the longest section that we'll read. Uh, It will seem very logistical, (laughs) but there are some really important things for us to see in the midst of it. So uh, let's pick up in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when we could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you, And has brought us the good news of your faith and love, and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us, as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For we now live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Uh, Let's pray. The Spirit would be at work this morning. Father, we thank you that you've given us your word and that it is faithful and true. And more than that, we thank you that you've sent your Spirit to work in our hearts to make it clear. So would you do that this morning? That we might see what the work of Jesus is, how it works out in our lives and what we are called to be as your church. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what is the church good for? (laughs) Some of you might be saying, "Mm, been wondering that question for a long time. There's different ways you can kind of answer that. One way to think about that is it's a a group of like-minded people that help each other out, encourage each other, Uh, This would be the typical response you would get in a religious studies kind of seminar, right? That it is about a community. 
that is building up its own identity and that, might, that has positive and negative sides to it. Uh, you might think of it as a consumer organization. This would be a very American way to approach it. And indeed, when we approach it that way, we get a lot of sermons that are, you know, X number of steps to achieve Y in your life. Uh, we certainly have a lot of programming, and uh, it's a place to see and be to be seen and to see others who are significant. It's a place to keep our kids entertained. It's a place to have various niche interests uh, accommodated. Again, some of that is good. Certainly, you know, you certainly can't avoid having programming as a church. <laughs> um, but we fall into that trap very often, I think, of being driven more by what, it is, what kind of product, what kind of goods and services we're offering. Another way to see the church, and I think the biblical way to see it, is as a context for change. The church is the place that God uses to bring us his word, to show us what he is doing in other people's lives, to call us more deeply into the good news of Jesus. See, Paul here in this, in this chapter, I mean, it's, most of, it's all of chapter 3 and a little bit of chapter 2, is sort of recounting what's been going on. He Again, we read Acts 17 at the beginning of this series, and Paul helped start this church, but there's all these riots that break out, and he and Silas and, and Timothy was probably with them at the time, uh, though he's not mentioned in Acts, have to leave. They have to flee, and then they go on further into Greece and down the peninsula and eventually to Athens. And at that point, Paul tells us again at the beginning of chapter 3 here that he decides he's got to send Timothy back to make sure this church is okay. And uh, it's Paul, by the time he's writing this, Paul and Silas and then Timothy returning are probably in Corinth, though it's not entirely certain, but they're probably there. They, they were in Corinth for a long time. Um, but Timothy comes back with a report. Again, there's all this kind of logistical stuff going on, but I think it's pretty clear that we do learn some things about what the church is for here. And we learn that it is a conduit of joy. It is a community for comfort. Not being comfortable, but for comfort. And it is a gathering for prayer. First, it is a conduit for joy. Notice how joy pops up throughout this passage, right? So right near the beginning, at the end of chapter 2 as we're reading, uh, Paul actually brings it up twice in verses 19 and 20. He says that that church, or he asks a kind of rhetorical question, <laughs> he says, what is the church, what are you but our hope, our joy, our crown of boasting? Paul is pretty excited about what this church is. Uh, he, then he goes on to sort of restate it, to say they're his glory and joy. He goes on and recounts, you know, Timothy's, you know, sending and returning, and he's so excited to hear about all these things that are going on. 
And, uh, and then in verse 9, again, in another rhetorical question that he asks, right? Like, he gives thanks to God for the joy that they brought. Joy is a funny thing, right? It's never really treated alone in the Bible, but it does come up. Joy and the verb rejoice, which are, you can hear the connection, right? Uh, are all throughout the New Testament. It's the kind of word that uh, Presbyterians don't use a lot. We're a little too straight-laced for that, you know. Uh, we don't bring it up a lot, but it's also a word that is, it's important that we kind of distinguish from a word that we do use a lot, especially in, in the modern American context, happiness. It, there's a whole field that's been spawned in recent years of happiness studies. So you can take classes in college on happiness. Um, the, the, the Atlantic, you know, the magazine that, now mostly an online presence, has a weekly article by a Harvard professor, Arthur Brooks, about happiness. These short articles about different things, which are sometimes interesting. Sometimes very, a lot of what comes out of happiness studies seems to be actually pretty common sense if you've read much uh, from the past. In fact, the recent article by Arthur Brooks was called Different Cultures Define Happiness Differently. So he talks about different ways that uh, cultures define it, but then he says there are, that they do tend to group the idea around good relationships, a higher consciousness, meaning a higher cause or you know, an often religious, uh, doing what you love, and then a feeling of well-being. But of course, you can't help but miss the fact that in modern America, we are mostly, when we talk about happiness, talking about a feeling of well-being more than anything else. How do I feel right now about my immediate circumstances? And so in that sense, if we're talking about happiness that way, joy is very much not the same thing as happiness. Now look, the Bible doesn't disregard our feelings about our immediate circumstances. Read the Psalms. There's quite a lot in there about the difficult circumstances people are going through. That, it's not that the Bible doesn't care about those things, but joy is about drawing on a deeper well. Joy is about a delight that we have from the perspective of what God has done in Jesus and will bring about through Jesus. In other words, joy has perspective. Joy buoys us up through the ups and downs of life. Circumstances that might be very unhappy, joy bears us through. Joy is about understanding that through his death and resurrection, Jesus has dealt with the worst aspects of life. He has dealt with sin and evil. He has dealt with our guilt. Taken it away if we are in him. He has broken the power of sin. And of course, broken open its results, death. 
And so our confidence is that we are not stuck in our sin. But get this, those of us who are in the church, we know that the other person is not stuck in their sin. I know that I and anybody else who's in Jesus has had the power of sin broken. And in fact, death itself will be undone if we are in Jesus. So, this is why joy is so important, but so much deeper than my present circumstances. Because I know that my present circumstances, as Paul will say elsewhere, are just a momentary affliction. However, however hard they are to deal with right this moment, and I'm not trying to minimize that, I do have a perspective in the gospel that those are passing. It will not be forever. And so the church ought to be a place where joy is given. It's given by, by of course, the Holy Spirit. Paul actually says this back in chapter 1 uh, when he, he says, uh, he's, he's talking about how they became imitators of him and you receive the word and much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. But the church itself becomes a kind of conduit for it. Because this is a curious thing. God, in his wisdom, didn't change everything in a flash. I mean, maybe that's a frustration, actually, <laughs> that you have, is that your heart wasn't changed in a flash. If you're a Christian here and you came to Christ... Everything didn't magically change. Maybe some things changed pretty quickly. Some people have that experience, right, where some aspect of their life, but then there are other aspects of your life you will find, hmm, they are stubborn. Some sins are stubborn. And God chooses to work through time and space and people in our lives. Part of the foolishness of God's wisdom is that he works through the church. That's not a pass for the sins of the church. But it is part of God's foolishness that he works through an institution that is itself, of course, imperfect. Because it's made up of all these sinners that are being saved. And so we ought to be a place that celebrates with joy what God has done. And one of the great joys of being in the church is that we see it at work, not only in our own lives, but in the lives of others. This is what Paul's doing. This is what Paul keeps talking about in this passage, is that he's, he has great joy for what God is doing in their lives. Because again, the more that our perspective is changed by what Jesus has done, the more we are excited about not just what I get out of this, but how great the work that Jesus is doing is in other people's lives. One day to renew the whole world. Which means my end is joy. 
you know, we have a catechism in the Presbyterian church, right? The, your chief end, meaning your purpose, but also your, the goal to which we are to arrive, is to glorify God and what? Enjoy him forever. Those are not two different things, by the way. <laughs> to glorify God and to enjoy him are the same thing. Joy is written into the very heart of the good news. If you don't believe me, the Gospel of Luke highlights this. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but Luke begins with joy. You remember in Luke 2 when Jesus is born and the angels show up and they come to the shepherds and what do they declare? Good news of great joy. And the book ends with joy. In Luke 24, after Jesus has died and been resurrected, he ends up meeting some of his followers along the road. They don't recognize him for a while. I'm not going to tell the whole story. But finally, at the end, it says that they were overcome with joy. Psalm 16 puts it well. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand, pleasures forevermore. Joy. One way of thinking about all the stuff the church is doing, we, we talked about it this morning, right, about some of the things that we're trying to think through, ways in which we're trying to come back from the pandemic, and that's going to be weird, right? It's going to be hard to kind of shake off a little bit of that rust, right, to, to get used to kind of getting, getting more engaged in things outside of our lives. Some of you had no problem diving right back into that as pandemic restrictions got lifted. Others of you are having a harder time, and that's okay. Most of us are somewhere in the middle. <laughs> this is the thing. All of the work of the church ought to be informed, shaped by the joy of the good news. I mean, whatever we think evangelism is, if it's not celebrating with great joy the good news of Jesus, we are heading in the wrong direction. Whatever it means to grow as a Christian, whether that's studying the Bible more, whether that's being in prayer more, whether that's being more actively engaged in other people's lives who are in the church, if it isn't informed by joy, and again, I don't mean in immediate sense, right this moment, that I'm feeling good about everything. No. If it's not, but if it's not informed by that delight of the fullness of God, the pleasures forevermore that are at his right hand, if it's not informed by the good news of Jesus and how he is changing us, it's not real growth because it doesn't lead to the end of glorifying God and enjoying him. You know, it applies to leadership, maybe even especially. Paul is giving an example here of how the church ought to lead, right? It ought to be led out of our joy in the good news. When we teach, when I'm preaching, as the elders, as we're leading other people, even if you're not formally an officer and you're leading some aspect of the church, I mean, it ought to be informed by this joy. I mean, even when we deal with the difficult things, 
part of what helps us get through those difficult things is joy. Again, learning to understand that however deep those challenges seem, they are momentary compared to the weight of glory that is being prepared for you by Jesus. I'm leaning hard on joy, but notice this. It is also a community of comfort. Because Paul and Silas and Timothy, we also learned in the previous passage, this church itself are afflicted. They're going through trials. Notice that that's why, that that seems to be the main reason why Paul sends Timothy back. I mean, of course, I'm sure he's wondering, like, what's going on in this church but uh, and as you get into chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, right, he tells us he specifically sent them back to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. Now, he seems to mostly be talking about the afflictions that they are experiencing. In other words, you help start this church and then you seem to be experiencing all these afflictions. But he's also pretty clear, like we just said in last week's passage, that this church itself is afflicted. So, whether he's simply talking about them or whether he's talking about the afflictions that the whole of the church experiences, he sent Timothy to comfort them. And in fact, Paul himself gets comfort from them. I mean, that's what he says. Uh, that's what he says uh, in, oh gosh, I lost the first. Uh, in verse 7, <laughs> that he is comforted by Timothy's report. See, Paul knows that joy, real joy, doesn't have blinders on. It is not blind to the difficulties of life, particularly the difficulties of faith, the elusiveness of hope, and the labor of love. These things are not easy. And joy is not about telling ourselves that they, are, they actually are easy. It is telling ourselves, though, that Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit are strong enough to carry us through. That again, the comforter, the Holy Spirit, is the source of this, but the church becomes a conduit for it of practical comfort in our lives. We seek a lot of comforts that are not particularly good. One way we, see, we do this is to re-narrate our lives. Things aren't going well, so we try to convince ourselves that actually it's not that bad. So one way of re-narrating then is denial. Uh, you know, it's not that bad. Not that hard. And of course, we very politely do this all the time. How's it going? <laughs> I'm doing all right. And of course, we're lying. I, I get it. We all know that sometimes people are not actually asking to hear what is going on. I'm not saying you, just, you owe anybody you're passing everything <laughs> about who you are. That would be exhausting. And you'd never get to work. The... Uh, 
But we do, and look, I mean, it is understandable, of course, somebody who's gone through something really difficult that's in grief, right? That that is a stage they're going to pass through. And we want patience for that. But to be stuck there, where we're convincing ourselves that actually this thing is going on, it's not really, it's not really bad, is a lie. And we're not being asked to gaslight ourselves over and over again about that. We are told to confront what is difficult, the trials that we experience. Another way of re-narrating, though, is catastrophizing, right? That everything is the worst. You know, so maybe that's, temperamentally, maybe that's you, right? This is going on, oh, shut it all down, right? Like this, everything is the worst in my life right now. And what's weird is that if we're a re-narrator, that's how you like to do it, how you like to try to find comfort, you will probably vacillate between the two. Convincing yourself everything is great, and then when you can no longer convince yourself that everything is great, everything's the worst. And then back again, over and over again. Uh, Another way to deal with it is uh, outrage. We're an outrage culture. Some of us... uh, have left-leaning outrage. Some of us have right-leaning outrage. Some of us have outrage at our families. Some at our friends. And we're kind of encouraged, quite frankly, to be outraged. Um, It is certainly the stuff of our public discourse. And the thing about outrage that's so uh, tempting is because we feel so right. We think, well, I'm taking, I'm taking up a righteous cause. And maybe you are. Maybe the cause is right. But what outrage is about is making the other person the enemy. And we kind of don't, you know you're outraged when you don't really want them to change. or when you don't want to take stock that perhaps you didn't totally understand the situation. Outrage wants to, keep, wants to define people as enemies and keep them there, which, of course, couldn't be anything more opposite than Jesus, who tells us to love our enemies and whose very life was about loving those who were his enemies and bringing them out of the domain of darkness and into his marvelous light. Maybe we medicate to comfort ourselves. You know, when the pandemic started, you know, the liquor sales went through the roof. I've tried to find, uh, I've tried to find some reliable statistics about alcohol uh, over the last year or so, and that's a little hard to do, but certainly anecdotally it seems like it's, it's gr- that's becoming a greater problem. I can tell you a statistic that is shocking. CDC on Wednesday put out a report on drug deaths in 2020. They rose 30% in a year. Uh, we like to medicate. 
Paul's aware, of course, of all of these. What Paul is doing constantly is telling us the real story so that we're not re-narrating our lives all the time. Paul points us instead of outrage to mourning. What is evil? He points us towards forgiveness and the path of peace. He's, of course, aware that we medicate. In fact, he explicitly says in Ephesians 5, do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. The comfort that the gospel offers is the same thing that is our source for joy that Jesus has entered in, that Jesus has dealt with sin and broken its power. Real joy doesn't teach us that you shouldn't feel this way or that way about difficulty. Rather, it gives us comfort through the difficulty, comfort through the trials. It is only the joyful person that actually knows what it means to lament and mourn, to hold up that God is good, and we know where we are going, and yet this current situation seems so awful. And to hold those two things in tension, to hold them in prayer. Joy gives us the courage to tell the hard truth, to feel the painful realities, to confront the unspoken. Joy and comfort go together. It gives us patience through trials. Patience with the knowledge that the work of Jesus is sufficient and it will carry us through. And though we may not know how this particular situation is going to turn out, We know, because Jesus has returned from the dead, that it is not the final word. So the church is a conduit for joy, and because it's a conduit for joy, it is also a community for comfort. And finally, it is a gathering for prayer. And I say that because that's what Paul does for this church at the end. Do you notice that? He asks the question, how can we give thanks? The answer seems to be verses 11 through 13, which is something of a blessing and also a prayer. It defies easy categorization. May God direct our way to you, he says in verse 11. In other words, he keeps telling him, I want to see you face to face. He is asking that God would bring them back. At least passing through Thessalonica, he wants to see them. Because let's face it, right, it's better to be face to face. And again, if a, if a pandemic and all those Zoom calls and all those other things are not enough to convince you that that is better to be face to face, uh-oh, it's going to be hard to convince you otherwise. Because it is better. It is better to have to deal with the unavoidable nonverbal cues that someone gives you. 
it is better to have to deal with the whole person immediately, unavoidably, than dealing with them by text, when I can get around to answering when I want, and I can continue to re-edit my words. Of course, that's the scarier part of being face-to-face with somebody, right? Is that inability to take the words back as they come out of your mouth. As a professional public talker, I know this one firsthand. Uh, He wants to be with them. And he wants them to grow in love for one another. Verse 12. And in the whole point of that, in verse 13, is so that they will be established, blameless, and holy. John Calvin said that in prayer, we dig up all the promises that were given in the gospel. In other words, prayer is the way in which we actually get a hold of those promises. Prayer seems so inefficient, though, doesn't it? Like the whole operation of the church for 2,000 years, (laughs) it seems like such an inefficient way for God to bring change in our lives. And yet over and over and over again, it is a primary way that God brings change. It is as if the goal of all of it was that we actually enjoy God and being with him. And so the instrument that he's going to use is to teach us to go to him. To come into his presence. To ask what we need. Not only for ourselves, but also for others. Again, Paul sets the example here. Not just our own needs, but the needs of others. In the way in which that will shape our lives, if we're, as we're in prayer, the way it will shape our lives is love and holiness. Just as Paul's praying. If you go to any of Paul's prayers, and there's several of them throughout his letters, love and holiness are always there. And some of the vocabulary is a little different, but the substance of love and holiness is always there. And love, you know, cannot be an abstraction. That's why Paul wants to be there with them. Because as important as his letters are, and they're certainly important, of course, for the life of the church, right? They make up a really important chunk of the Bible. It is better for them if Paul could be with them face to face. Because you can't love in the abstract, as much as we like to think that. As much as we like to talk about how much we care about others, but unless you're actually involved in their lives, and especially if you're involved in their lives when it gets messy. That's what love is. The hardest times to love somebody are when they're going through trials or when they have sinned against you. Can I get an amen to that? Nobody wants to amen that. Because that's the reality that we all know is true, right? Those are the hardest times to love somebody is when they're going through difficult times because it's hard to walk with them and not be the kind of person that gives pat answers. 
or just wants them to kind of hurry up and get over it. Or to sit there as they circle back around the same problem over and over again. That's hard. But that's the stuff of love. And it's hard to love those who sin against you for reasons that are probably obvious. Because you've been hurt. But of course, the way of the gospel is forgiveness. We forgive because Christ forgave us. I'm not saying there aren't, and there are, there is a real distinction between forgiveness and reconciliation. I'm not saying forgiveness is easy. I'm certainly not saying forgiveness means forgive and forget. But this is the stuff of what it means to love others is the difficult work of forgiveness, the difficult work of walking with them through, chi- through trials. But here's the other thing. Loving other people, and this might be a thing that we're not as cle- we don't know as much about ourselves, is it's hard to enjoy other, what is good for other people. This is what Paul is excited about, is that they are growing. And we can't help but sometimes comparing ourselves, right? When something is going well for others, in particular, of course, Paul has in mind their spiritual growth here. And if we feel like, I've kind of been stuck in the mud for a while. It's hard to love in that way. But it's that kind of love that leads to holiness. And Paul's going to talk a lot more about holiness in the next chapter, so I'm not spending too much time on that, other than to say that you can see Paul's whole idea of holiness is often very different than many of ours because it, is a, it grows out of love. Most of us think that we are trying to be holy and we hope love sort of follows along at some point. Paul sees it the other way around. He wants them to abound in love so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness. Holiness is about what it looks like to get healthy. What it looks like to have a heart that really is truly loving others. And most of all, loving God above all things. Again, we'll talk a lot more about that in uh, certainly next week. But it's worth us stopping then as we wrap this up to think about what we are as two rivers. This is about a church that is a conduit for love and comfort is a gathering of the prayerful. What should that mean for us? I mean, the prayer thing might be the most obvious, you know, sort of to-do item is why we have a weekly prayer meeting. And I know that not everyone can make that. I'm not trying to lay a guilt trip on you. But it is why it's an essential part of what we do in the life of the church. Because without prayer, we will not find the promises of God. It is through prayer that we dig them up. Again, that's true of us individually, but it's also true of us as a church. And we need to be in prayer. 
Again, I encourage you, if you can, to make the prayer meeting. If you can't, okay, that's fine, no problem. Be in prayer. And if you haven't been in prayer, don't start with the marathon prayer. Don't go home and like, I'm going to carve out like an hour this afternoon. Try to find consistency, right? Just start with, I'm going to pray a few minutes each morning. Doesn't have to be long. Start with consistency, okay? We don't need volume. We're looking for consistency. But joy and comfort are harder to put our finger on. And I think that we will only find them if the stuff of our church is the celebration of the good news. Because joy is not a thing you can produce. And quite frankly, neither is the instinct and the know-how to comfort others. You can't grow in these things, but they grow indirectly. They grow by becoming more and more equipped with not only an intellectual, but a practical knowledge of the grace of Jesus. So that I recognize it in my life. And so as I see others, <laughs> I can celebrate with them what's going on in their lives. We can respond to each other with the joy that we have in Jesus. So that when I see others that are going through trials, who are discouraged, I can see the opportunity to care for them because I know it firsthand. I think we've got a lot coming our way in the next chapter of this church's life <laughs> coming out of the pandemic. But everything we need is in Jesus. Everything we need is in the gospel of Jesus. We just need to unpack it. So let's start with prayer right now and get to work on that. Lord, we pray that you would help us to dig up all the treasures of the gospel that are ours. Pray that you would open our eyes to ways in which we can love others well, that we can celebrate and joy with them, that we can provide comfort for those who are struggling. And we pray that you would teach us to pray. Disciples asked long ago to be taught how to pray. And we are no different. We need to be taught as well. But you love to see your people come to you. So teach us all these things, most of all, because we know the grace of Jesus more richly. So we ask that you would show us Jesus even as we come to this meal. In his name, amen.